Well, Isaac, you didn't mention all the different kinds of fasts. My personal favorite is the Darius fast. I don't know if you remember King Darius. He was tricked into uh, having uh, Daniel go into the lion's den, and it said uh, Darius fasted all night. And so that's personally my favorite kind of fast. And so, how many have the faith to join me in the Darius fast? Anybody? There we go. So good. So good. So bad. We're starting a new series today called Wealth with God. I'm so excited because this is a series where you're going to go in one way and come out another way. So we're going to be doing this all the way through May. So it's going to be very exciting. So you guys ready? All right. I believe that many in the church, they're waking up to the fact that God wants them to prosper. They're believing that it's God's will for them to prosper, but they've never been told how to prosper. And so this whole series is really about how to prosper with God. Here's the long version of what we're going after. It's helping kingdom-minded people design a personalized step-by-step roadmap to build wealth from debt to complete financial freedom so they can shape the course of world history without building a golden calf. Now repeat that with me. Just kidding. Here's kind of the short version of it. It's your mission to figure out what is the one path that God has for you to build all the wealth that he has for you. It's kind of like uh, an architect and you getting together and designing the house that meets your needs, your desires, your goals, your, your season of life. And so every person's wealth plan is going to be different. So a typical financial plan, it tells you what, uh, what do you do with the wealth that you already have. This is not that. This is how are you going to build that wealth in the first place. Does that make sense? All right. So um, you maybe heard me say that this plan is to take you to complete financial freedom. Here's my definition of uh, complete financial freedom. You don't have to ask money for permission to obey God or pursue the dreams in your heart. Does that sound good to anybody? You don't have to ask money for permission to obey God or pursue the dreams in your heart. Here's a more formal way of looking at it, is you have the ability to live from the income off of your personally invested resources. That means that the passive income coming from your investments exceed your living expenses. At that point, you are financially free. And you can do whatever's in your heart, whatever God's calling you to do. Here's the good news. This can be achieved by anyone. Even if you're starting out in debt, deep in the hole, and I'm not exaggerating. With time, consistent focus, and the right strategies, you can get to financial freedom in a number of years. I believe anybody can do it in 12 to 15 years. The earliest I've heard of anybody doing it is about two and a half years. It was a pastor who replaced $180,000 worth of, not all of us make $180,000, $180,000 worth of income and benefits in two and a half years in passive income, went from zero to that. I believe anybody, if you look at the math, can do it in 15 years. Every person in this room who works a full, a full life will have enough money coming through their hands to achieve complete financial freedom. So why, if you're going to have that money coming through anyway, why not steward it for wealth? I'm praying that we move from financial freedom actually to financial abundance, uh, where you're actually giving away the majority of your income. What I'm really after is I'm going to make up a term here. You guys ready for this? Apostolic abundance. Apostolic abundance. Here's apostolic abundance. Is, uh, the word apostles used in the Bible, but it's actually not a biblical term first. It was actually a term used by the Romans. Here's what they did. The Romans sent out these naval emissaries, and so they would, they would conquer land, and they would send out these apostles who were commissioned by the emperor. They had all the authority and all the resources that they needed to take the culture that was happening in Rome and go and bring that culture to this newly conquered city so that when the king came to visit, he would feel at home. You guys starting to get the picture? What did he teach his apostles to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Apostolic abundance is taking the prosperity, it's taking the finances, and partnering with heaven so that we can see heaven come to earth. Deuteronomy 8.18, this has always been on God's heart. He says, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to create wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your forefathers. Why did God give his people, why did he give you the power to create wealth? It's so that you can, he can establish his covenant here on earth. Here's another way of saying that. It's so that people can see what our God is like through the generosity and through the transforming power of his people. Listen to how a rabbi describes this. I'm not sure I've heard it any better. Are you ready for this? One of the great differences that set Jews apart from other cultural groups is that we see our wealth as a, mean to par- as a means to partner with God as a way to bring God's kingdom into this earth a concept we call tikkun olam, or perfecting the world. We perfect the world by using our God-given wealth to further God's realm on this planet. So what you see is that the Jewish people's pursuit of wealth is often paired with the pursuit of charitable works. So it's not only for selfish purposes. Here's another way of saying this, is I'm looking for prophetic prosperity. Here's prophetic prosperity. Prophecy always starts in the unseen realm, and it comes and it affects the seen realm. Prophetic prosperity is when it starts with the heart and the blessing of God and comes upon his people and actually affects things on this earth. I'm talking about influencing cities, transforming nations, generational wealth that leads to generational influence. That's really what I'm after. I'm not talking about us getting nice things. I'm sure God doesn't mind you having nice things as long as that doesn't become the pursuit of your heart. What I'm talking about is a wealth that actually transforms cities and influences nations. Is anybody up for that? So here's the challenge uh, for many of us. The only training in finances that I received, and maybe you did too from the church, was tithes and offerings. That's pretty much all we're told. And I've got some news for you. You are not going to build wealth through tithes and offerings alone. I bet you've never heard that in a church before, have you? It's great. Tithes and offerings are definitely a part of it. Generosity is a part of it, but it's going to require more than that. Um, I can prove it to you that you cannot build wealth through tithes and offerings alone. You guys ready for me to prove it to you? How many people do you know that love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and have been faithful with tithing and offering, and still have debt, have very little savings, and are living paycheck to paycheck? Okay, that's the norm for Christianity, and I'll, I'll tell you why I think that is in a little bit. It's because If the enemy can keep you sick and the enemy can keep you poor, he can severely limit your destiny. There's a spiritual battle over this thing. Half the church even thinks poverty is spiritual, but we'll deal with that in a second. Here's the good news. I've learned the secret of wealth. I've gone on this quest to a far land and I've come back with the secret. Are you ready for the secret to wealth? There is no secret. I can tell you how to build wealth in one sentence, and everything I'm going to tell you in this sentence you already have heard and you already know. It's the implementation and becoming the kind of person who can actually carry it out is, uh, is what we're going to spend some time on. So here's the secret to wealth. You guys ready? You partner with God to earn more than you spend and invest the difference wisely. That's it. That is the only path to wealth for a, for a believer. And so we're going to uh, take a few sessions on each one of those phrases until you have a personalized step-by-step roadmap to build wealth from debt to complete financial freedom so you can shape the course of world history without building a golden calf. Does that sound good? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a few minutes, and uh, there's a question that's going to pop up here. I'll just give it to you right here. 
How would you summarize the story of your family's life concerning money, possessions, and teaching on prosperity as you were growing up? Um, in my circles, the word prosperity was often associated with greed because there was many, there's a lot of teaching on prosperity where it was all about getting more things and it just kind of became insane. And so uh, I want you to just take a minute or two and just turn to the person next to you. And how would you summarize the story of your family's life concerning money, possessions, and teaching on prosperity? Um, what perspectives on money, another way of saying it, what perspectives on money did you catch from your parents or growing up? And so that's kind of one question. And the second one is, what do you hope to see happen as a result of taking this course here? So just take a minute or two, and then we'll come back. Invest the difference wisely. All right, let's take about another 30 seconds and then we'll bring it back here. I've been asked to repeat the partner with God sentence. You guys ready? The secret to wealth in one sentence, partner with God to earn more than you spend and invest the difference wisely. So we're going to spend a few weeks on each one of those phrases there. And so we'll, uh, by the end, you'll have a, a laser focus plan on how God wants you to build wealth. Any other questions so far? All right. Let's start off with a little quiz because everybody loves pop quizzes, don't they? Woo! Just brings back all those good memories from high school. Just the best, the best parts of high school. All right, here it is. What is God's will concerning finances? A, not enough. B, just enough. Or C, more than enough. <laughs> okay, if it's A, then he lied because he said he'd be our provider. 
If it's B, then he's cruel to ask us to give generously. And scriptures like 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and 11 could never be true, which we'll look at here in just a second. The answer is C, because it's right in his name. El Shaddai means the God of more than enough or the God of infinite supply. Listen, gang, if you don't know God's will concerning prosperity, you're never going to have faith to believe him for what he paid for. How, do you know, how can you have faith if you're not even sure if God's agreeing with you? So we're going to have to take some time to remove some weeds and plant some good seeds in the garden of your heart. Listen, if the enemy can get you to have 5% doubt, you know what you're going to do? You're going to focus on that 5% doubt. You're going to be thinking about that. And here's what doubt is. Doubt disqualifies you. It's to judge oneself as outside of that promise. In other words, yeah, that's true for other people, but it's not true for me. What's the Bible say? You must believe and not doubt. So faith is like a team of horses that's pulling you towards the promise. Doubt is like a team of horses that's pulling you away. And he says, it just, oh, what we're going to do is we're going to snip that cord today because it just takes a mustard seed-sized faith to see mountains move if you remove the doubt. So we're going to have to remove some of those doubts today. So let me just share briefly just kind of how I got into this subject. So uh, Mary and I, we came to this church in 2008. There was already a supernatural flow into the church. It's a real prophetic stream. And we just began going after healing. And I don't know how else to describe it other than an all-out ballistic assault. How many of you were here in 2008 when we just came? And so God bless you. Yes. Many blessings to you. <clears throat> for all, and for the grace for our first 10 years of ministry of learning and mistakes and treating you like lab rats. So God bless you. We're so glad for you. But we, we've just seen awesome breakthroughs in healing. God said, go after it. And so we went after it. And so we have seen blind eyes from birth opened up. We've seen deaf ears. We've seen people without um, the organs to hear actually have the organs physically created so that they could hear. Oh, by the way, these miracles I'm talking about are in Columbus. They're not just in Africa. Aren't you guys glad that God does miracles in our city and not just in, for missionaries? We've had creative miracles where missing body parts grew back. Actually, this pulpit used to be a walker. There was a man who had cancer in his femur, and he had to have it replaced with a titanium rod, and so uh, he got prayer. The titanium disappeared, the bone grew back, and he didn't need the walker anymore, so uh, one of our pastors turned it into a pulpit. Doesn't that just sound like a good idea? Yeah. We had another miracle where <clears throat> it was at a college campus during a debate on whether or not the supernatural is for today, and... There was a demonstration afterwards, and the girl who had a glass eye, the glass eye popped out in front of about 120 people, and a brand new eyeball grew back in front of everybody. Yeah. We've had metal dissolve out of bodies. We've had 16 people raised from the dead. We had people get out of wheelchairs. Uh, We had a person who had cerebral palsy. Uh, Their limbs were extremely twisted. She was extremely short for her age. Some of our people prayed for her in Target, and she grew seven to eight inches taller, gets out of the wheelchair with no more cerebral palsy. Yeah. We've had two cases of mental retardation healed. One was a, um, one of our guys trained up a group of kids in the inner city. He was doing a Bible study with them. They went down the street, paid, prayed for the girl who was mentally retarded, and uh, she rode a different bus to go to a different school. And uh, within a week, she was normal and going to their school. We've seen autism healed. We've seen schizoaffective disorder healed. The most, it was so healed that the psychiatrist removed the diagnosis from the chart. It's the most incurable thing in mental health. HIV documented healings. Just this year, we've had four cases of hepatitis C completely healed. Um, we've had people who have had uh, scars in their arms from cutting and needle marks just, just during worship without prayer get brand new skin and all their scars disappear. I've had that happen twice this year. Here's what you need to understand. 
The same God who paid for the forgiveness of your sins. The same God who paid for the healing of your body is the same God who paid for abundant provision of your finances. Okay, we're going to like, don't take my word for it. We're going to see it in the word of God, and I hope you're going to see it in a way that you've never seen before. So in 2011, God told me, I want you to go after finances the way that you went after healing. For to me, it was just pretty much an all-out ballistic assault. So I took about a year. I read about 100 books. I listened to lots of different teachings. I meditated. I asked questions. I did interviews. And at the end of that, I plan on doing about a six-part series. I would never research that much for a normal series. But uh, so I actually ended up doing an 18-part series. And so I remember we had a guest speaker, and he's like, Jim, I can't believe you did an eight-part series. I've never heard anyone talking about finances. I'm like, no, 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 18. Like, oh, my goodness, are you kidding me? So I never planned on doing it. I didn't even start talking about giving till week 13, because if you don't take care of the heart issues, you're really just trying to use the promises of God like a genie bottle to manipulate God to get you to do something. How many of you guys know principles without the prince is more like witchcraft in the kingdom of God? we got so many people who are just, show me the principles that I need to do, and I'm not here to give you a whole bunch of principles. I'm here for you to enter into a partnership with the Holy Spirit to become the kind of person who can carry wealth so it doesn't crush you, so that you can actually carry the, the transforming power into a city. So here's my definition of prosperity. You have no financial debt, and you have more than enough money to fulfill every divine assignment God has for you, and enough left over to help others fulfill their divine assignments. That sound like a good idea? Let me read it to you again. You have no financial debt, and you have more than enough money to fulfill every divine assignment God has for you, and enough left over to help others fulfill their divine assignments. Here's what that means. Prosperity doesn't mean that every Christian is going to be a zillionaire. It does mean you're going to have finances proportionate to your assignment. And so it's going to look different for the farmer in Uganda than it is for the person who's called to reach Hollywood elite. Everyone's going to have finances proportionate to that. Abundance, if you're Joseph in the prison, isn't a palace on a hill somewhere in the finest chariot. It's uh, the emotional health, the well-being, the favor, the strategies that got him through so that he could be promoted from the pit to the pinnacle. Here's what we're to do. We're to stay in our lane, and in our lane, God gives us an abundance to bring kingdom influence into whatever realm of responsibility he's assigned us to. I want you to think of yourself like a hose. So uh, the the blessings of God flow through us into other people, and the inside of a hose gets wet. When the priority of your finances is on God and other people, God will take better care of you on accident than you ever could take care of yourself on purpose. Here's another way of looking at it. If God can get money through you, he will get money to you. Remember, his name is El Shaddai, not El Chipo. Uh, My wife and I, we both uh, went to different churches growing up, and each one of those churches, we gave over a million dollars a year to missions. So we grew up loving missions, just absolutely. And so we would hear lots of stories that went something like this. The missionary family, they would sit down, they would have zero money, They would set the table, they would hold hands, and they would pray by faith for food. And all of a sudden, at the end of the prayer, there'd be a knock on the door, there'd be a family standing there with bags of groceries that would last them for a week or two. Man, we need those stories of miracle provision. But I want to raise up a church full of people who are the ones bringing the groceries to the door of the needy people. I understand that there has been bad teaching on prosperity by the church in the past, There's also been bad teaching on heaven, and I still plan on going there. Fear of error is not a reason to ignore the truth. If you ignore the truth, you are already in error. 
Remember, if the enemy can keep you sick and poor, he can severely limit your destiny. So what doctrines in the, in the past 30 years of the church have been the ones that have been most fought against? Healing and finances. They've even made jokes about it. It's the health and wealth gospel. Um, listen, Jesus did not die for the sickness and poverty gospel. There were definitely some errors in the health and wealth movement in the 80s and 90s. Um, the errors usually showed up in one of two ways. Here's the first error. The idea that poverty is somehow spiritual. That God keeps you poor to keep you humble, to keep you dependent on him. That going without is a good thing. That uh, you know, it's spiritual to have poverty and lack. Listen, if poverty is so spiritual, why does the Bible tell us to give to the poor? Wouldn't that just ruin their spirituality? One of the poorest ways to help the poor is to be poor. I'm just going to keep rolling these at you. You just keep digesting them, all right? It's ironic, the monks who uh, promoted this lifestyle of poverty as being spiritual, the only way they are able to have that lifestyle is because wealthy people funded it so they could live that way. God's called each one of us to be stewards of money. Everything in the kingdom that gets stewarded multiplies and increases. And let me just give you a revelation. If you're going to steward money, it means you're going to have to have some money to steward. If poverty is from God, why did the Lord bless Isaac so that he became? Are you ready for this? This is a quote from Genesis 26, verses 12 and 13. The Lord blessed Isaac so that he became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. Who was it that gave him that? It was God who blessed him. This It wasn't the devil. He wasn't some greedy Wall Street person who was the villain in a movie. It was God who blessed him. If poverty is so spiritual, then why are we told to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? There's no poverty in heaven. There's no recession. There's no 30,000-year mortgages on your mansion in heaven. Graham Cook says this, God has abundance, the enemy has a budget. If money is so bad for us, why doesn't Satan just pour money out of the Christians and they just backslide right into hell? If money is so bad, why did Satan take it away from Job? And why did God reward Job with a double portion at the end for faithfulness? Why is the good man the one who leaves an inheritance to his children's children? I'll tell you what, people love this verse. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Man, we love that. I I love that verse. Religion loves the person who seeks first the kingdom of God. But when the rest of the verse comes true, and God will add, and all these things will be added unto him. Religion says, who's this person think they are? We liked them better when they were humble and poor, not when God was adding blessings to their life. So the first error is saying that poverty is spiritual or somehow you're more uh, spiritual if you're poor or somehow if you have wealth, you must be apart from God. You're greedy. It can't be a good thing. So that was the first error. Here's the second error is that our spirituality is measured by the size of our house or how much money we make or what we own. That's that's equally as perverted of an error. Material possessions that a person has are not from the blessings of God unless they are. Every, I mean, people who are in the mafia, they are materially blessed. It doesn't mean it's from God. But there are some people whose, whose material blessings, whose financial provision is directly from the hand of God. And you know what? It's not your job or my job to figure out who's who. 
You don't get to judge another man's harvest when you have no idea what kind of seed they planted. There's times in the Bible where people's blessing was directly from the hand of God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the, li- the list goes on. A few years ago, I was, at, um, I was at a house in another state. This person had a large house. They had lots of land. They had horses. And they began to gossip about somebody else. And they said, you would not believe how big their house is. And you just can't believe this. And I'm thinking, your house is bigger than mine. You've got way more than I do. And so I asked her, I said, well, how much is too much? She didn't have an answer. How many of you guys realize, um, you, no one ever thinks that what they have is too much. It's always some other person in another situation. Okay, let me tell you how much money is too much money. Are you ready? It's whatever amount replaces trust in God. For some people, it's 100 bucks. For another person, it might be 100 million. So loving God does not mean you have to be broke. And having money doesn't necessarily mean that you're godly and blessed. Here's the deal with money. Money is to the natural realm what the anointing is to the supernatural realm. It's simply a way to make things happen. Money is just a tool. Money is where we turn our dollars into soldiers to accomplish kingdom purposes. Some of that means providing for our family. Some of that actually means to enjoy the goodness of God. There was three tithes in ancient Israel, and one of the tithes they actually took and went and partied on it. They went to a festival, celebrated God's goodness. He said, drink the best drink, eat the best meat. How many of you are like, I believe in tithing now? (laughs) And part of that uh, stewardship is going to be to multiply it. Part of that stewardship is going to be to be a blessing and meet the needs of other people. Think of money like a shovel. It's just a tool to accomplish work. Nobody gets impressed with your shovel collection. I've never been to somebody's house. You're not going to be like, hey, man. I just got a new shovel. You want to see it? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the, yeah, this one, um, it's covered in rhinestones. Isn't it beautiful? And this one, uh, my daughter bedazzled it. Isn't that so pretty? Remember the bedazzler? Does anybody else remember that? No one's doing that. Why? Because there are tools to accomplish purpose. That's how we need to see money. We don't need to be impressed by people's shovel collection. We need to recognize as those shovels are given so that we can accomplish a purpose here on earth. So let me give you a verse that I believe just says it all. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. Uh, the context of, the, of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 are two whole chapters that talk about giving. Two whole, it has, the only topic covered is money. So the, 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 that's the context of this thing. You guys ready? And God is able to make all grace squirt out to you in small portions. No, no, it's not what it says. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Come on. Listen, gang, if this verse isn't true, then John 3, 16 is not true either. True prosperity is having more than enough so that you can abound in every good work. Here's what that means. Jesus paid a price so that He wants you to get to the financial point where if there's a need that comes across your path and your heart is moved to meet that need, that you'll have a stream of income to meet that thing. You're like, Jim, well, I don't believe that. Well, thank you for admitting your unbelief. We're going to need to deal with that before you make any progress. Are we okay? This is good news, by the way. 
One of the biggest problems that people immediately have with teaching on prosperity comes from the belief that prosperity is selfish. Prosperity is not selfish because it's not all about you. Real real prosperity is defined by how much we give away, not how much we keep for ourselves. Prosperity is about blessing, not possessing. Can I just flip this thing and tell you the truth? Since we're friends, can I tell you the truth here? It's actually selfish for you to not desire prosperity. Well, Jim, I just want enough to provide for me and my family. You religious, selfish pig. Here's what you're saying. I've got all of my needs met. Who cares about the rest of the world? That is the spirit of stupid, getting married to the spirit of poverty, and then having a child and trying to sound wise. Margaret Thatcher's got a great quote, the former prime minister of England. No one would have remembered the good Samaritan if he'd only had good intentions. He had money as well. When you have just enough, you are limited in your ability to be a blessing. When you have more than enough, you can be a blessing to those in need. You ready for this giant revelation? I didn't sit on top of a mountain and meditate for weeks to get this one. Are you ready for this? This one just came to me. You cannot be a big giver if you do not have a big abundance to give from. Prosperity is about having more than enough, not just for yourself, so that you can be a blessing to other people. That's why it's not selfish to desire prosperity. Well, Jim, money can't buy happiness. Neither can poverty. No one's talking about buying happiness here. But here's what money can do. It can spread the gospel to nations who have never heard it. It can feed the poor. It can plant churches and hospitals and dig wells overseas. It can rescue girls coming out of human trafficking. It can shelter the homeless. It can leave an inheritance to your children who don't have to start in ground zero, and they can begin to have generational influence at a greater impact than you left off with. It should be obvious that you can't go into all the world and disciple nations if you can't even afford to go to the store. Well, Jim, that's great, but Jesus was poor, and we're supposed to be like Jesus. Have you heard this one? Just a quick question. Um, What Bible is it that you're reading? Take off the religious lens and let's examine scripture here for a second. You guys ready? Let me ask you, was Jesus really poor? So the Magi, they actually brought expensive gifts to Jesus at his birth. The father endowed his ministry from the very beginning. So here's who the Magi were. They were the New Agers of the day. They, uh, They were from Persia and the Persian king was called the king of all kings. The Magi were the kingmakers of the day. They were taught to recognize and honor royalty. Thousands of years beforehand, there was, a, there was a man named Daniel. Remember the book of Daniel? Daniel's in Persia. He was numbered among the Magi, among all the New Agers, and he trained them to look for a greater king by signs in the heavens. And so these Magi recognized that this sign had happened, and the kingmakers traveled 1,500 miles And they traveled with such a great company that here's what it says. When King Herod heard that the Magi from the east had come to Jerusalem, he was deeply disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Now listen, I think a lot of times religion would paint it like we got these three guys coming and they're emaciated, they've got these tattered bathrobes with these giant paper hats and they come and and they've got these little gifts and it's like, here Jesus, here's a baby rattle and a diaper genie. 
All of Israel was disturbed at the fact that these magi had come. They were to come with great wealth, gifts proportionate for a king. Here's how scripture defines it. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Why? Because they'd found a greater king than the king of all kings who, who claimed to be that. Then it's, uh, you ready for this? Here's Matthew 2.11. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Treasure chests, plural. Uh, here's a little Walmart spritzer of frankincense. Use it sparingly. Here's a little gold nugget wrapped in tinfoil I found on the ground on the way here. What dumb luck. Here's the footnote um, from the Passion Translation, Matthew 2.11. These wise men were extremely wealthy. They presented gifts that totaled a great sum of money. Not tiny presents wrapped with bows, but treasure chests full of financial wealth. It's hard to put on the Christmas card there, isn't it? (laughs) Joseph and Mary received so much money from this that Joseph was actually able to flee with his family to Egypt and not have to work for three years when Herod was trying to kill him. Jesus was so successful as a businessman that he was known as the carpenter of Nazareth. A lot of people are trying to picture Jesus as if he was just kind of this homeless, you know, I don't, hippie, you know, walking around with these crazy sayings and stuff like that. Are we, are we really supposed to believe the most successful carpenter of Nazareth was homeless, sleeping on the street with his tools? <laughs> Jesus had so much money that he had a treasurer. Are you ready for this revelation? If you have a treasurer, you need treasures. <laughs> he wasn't walking around with an empty box, guarding it with his life. Jesus had enough money to be an outrageous giver as a lifestyle. Remember on the night Jesus was betrayed, what happened? He went and whispered something in Judas's ear. Judas gets up and leaves, and what do the disciples say? Up, there goes Judas to give away more money in the middle of the night. It was such a common place for Judas to go up and give money, they just assumed that's what he was doing because Jesus was an outrageous giver as a regular lifestyle. There was enough money in the treasury that nobody knew that Judas was skimming off the top except Jesus, and he had to get that from a supernatural word of knowledge. Jesus was so prosperous that he supported 12 teenage boys for three years of ministry, and we all know how much they eat, (laughs) perhaps the greatest miracle of all. And that number grew to 70 and 72 and and, and other women. He supported all that. At the end of Jesus' life, the soldiers actually gambled over who got Jesus' robe. You know why? Probably because it was nice. It wasn't some stained sweatpants and some moth-eaten T-shirt. Listen, I got a whole chapter on this in my book, How Heaven Invades Your Finances. And so I just, I go through all this stuff. I'm not saying Jesus was some hotshot, flashy evangelist who walked around with a bunch of bling. I am saying that he was prosperous. I'm saying that he had no financial debt and he had more than enough money to fulfill every divine assignment God had for him and enough money left over to help others fulfill theirs. If the word prosperity or prosperous is tweaking you, just switch it to this, abundant provision. More than enough. Jim, you need to stop preaching that prosperity gospel. I don't know why my religious voice sounds like that. I I, I don't know why. Actually, all of my voices sound the same, whether I'm like, like impersonating like Mary or anybody else. Mary's like, stop doing my voice. I'm like, it's the only voice I have. I wish I had another one. <laughs> there is no prosperity gospel. 
There is the gospel of the kingdom that includes prosperity. Prosperity is not the whole gospel, but the gospel is not whole without it. Remember in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is getting ready to start his public ministry, and it says he goes into the temple, he enrolls the scroll, and he found the place. In other words, they weren't planning on preaching on it this day. He decides to change the subject. He goes out of order. What you love when Jesus goes out of order? And he begins to read this prophecy from Isaiah, and it's about him, and it's describing his ministry. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me too. And he begins to say what he's anointed for. Begins to name these negative conditions and what he will do to transform them. So let me just read them. He is going to, um, he's anointed to proclaim liberty to the captives. So what's the negative condition? Captivity. What's the positive solution? He's going to bring freedom or liberty. Recovery of sight to the blind. Negative condition? Blindness. Recovery of sight. Set at liberty those who are oppressed. But do you remember what the first promise was? The spirit of the Lord is upon me, upon Jesus, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Let me ask you this. What's good news to the poor? You don't have to be poor anymore. How is it that the good news, when it's preached to the poor, is the solution to poverty? Isn't that interesting? Because the gospel is the power of God. And when it comes into a person's life, it plants seeds in them to get them out of sin, to get them out of sickness, to restore them to emotional wholeness, to have abundant provision in their life and for protection. Saved, healed, delivered, made whole, prospered, and protected. It's all part of the gospel. There is no prosperity gospel, only the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can we just take this thing to another level for a moment? When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for your financial provision in the same way that he paid for the forgiveness of your sins. Let me put it this way. God would no more rather have you in poverty than he would have you in adultery. He paid for them both. I'm hoping you're feeling massive hope release and not any kind of guilt or shame. Listen, gang, we're all, we're all growing in this thing. Okay, but if we don't see what's available, we're never going to be able to see it with the eyes of faith and pull it into this realm. So wherever you're at, see what's been provided and... Get happy. <laughs> like, this is really good news. So listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Again, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are two whole chapters talking about giving, two whole chapters talking about finances. Are you ready for this? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is a, is a word used to describe what was released at the cross. Okay. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Okay, I can just feel some of you just swirling. I don't know, what's that talking about? It's probably talking about spiritual richness and this and that. Let me read it to you again. For you know that the, remember, the context is finances. You know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let me ask you two questions. When did Jesus become poor? And why did Jesus become poor? Here's the first one. When did Jesus become poor? I'm going to just give you the answer, then I'm going to kind of back up and answer it. Here's the answer. Jesus became poor only once in his life. It was for three hours on the cross when he was stripped naked and crucified for us. He became poor so that we could become rich. What does that mean? We'll get to that in a second. Let me ask you a few questions um, before we... So when did Jesus become poor? Let me ask you a question. How many of you in here believe that Jesus was sick for 33 years of his life? Anybody? Um, the answer's going to be no to all these. So just... 
Um, it says he bore our sickness and carried our pain in Isaiah 53, 5. When did that happen? When he took stripes and when he hung on the cross. How I many anyone here believe Jesus was cursed for 33 years of his life? Here's what Galatians 3.13 says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. When did he become cursed? On the cross. How many believe Jesus was in sin for 33 years of his life? 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When did he become sin? On the cross. How many of you believe Jesus was poor for 33 years? 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. When did Jesus become poor? There's really only two options. Either this verse is talking about relative to the riches of heaven, he was poor. We already saw, though, he wasn't poor. He was, he was financially prosperous. Um, the other, only other thing I, I would say is he... He took our poverty on the cross because, as we already saw, he was not poor at his death. Jesus became sickness so that you could be healed and whole. Jesus became cursed so that you could become blessed. Jesus became sin so that we could become righteousness, so that we could stand before the Father with an unstained innocence. Jesus became poor so that we could become rich in every way. Here's one way of saying it. Jesus got what you and I deserved so that we could get what he deserved. That's grace. It's scandalous. There's nothing we can do to earn it. So let's look at this verse again and ask, why did Jesus become poor? 2 Corinthians 8 9 again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Are you ready? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Well, Jim, this is talking about spiritual blessings. It's not talking about money. Well, the problem with that is the context is money. The problem with that is every time this word rich is used in the New Testament, it's talking about money. Paul, a few paragraphs later, uses this exact same word in 2 Corinthians 9.11. He says, you will be made rich in every way, then you can always give freely. Another translation says this, you will always be rich enough to be generous at all times. Same word, same context. What's he saying? This is really good news that he paid for your abundant provision, he paid for the prosperity of your finances so that you could have more than enough to accomplish every divine assignment, have enough left over to help others there. He paid for it in the same way that he paid for the forgiveness of your sins and the healing of your body. Is this good news to anybody? The Bible says this in several places, that Jesus came to set us free. Let me ask you a dead serious question. How free are you as a believer if you're not financially free? How many might believing that maybe God has another level for us? There was a man in the Old Testament named Esau. Esau had access to a birthright of blessing that would have been unbelievable. It had grown from Abraham to Isaac, and it was coming down to him. But Esau did not value the birthright. He sold it for some temporary appetites instead of getting his birthright, and he lost it. I feel like there's been a spirit of Esau released on the church where we do not value our birthright. We do not value the things that Jesus paid for. We just kind of look at it as optional, like a sunroof. Like, oh, that'd be kind of nice. Listen, if I gave my son, gave his life so that you can enjoy the life that he deserved, and you were saying, I'll just take a little bit of it, I wouldn't think, wow, you are so humble. What a a noble person you are to just take a little bit of it. Okay? Okay. I would think, what a horrible person. Like, take it all. 
It has been paid for. You're not honoring me by taking little scraps. It's not humble to just take forgiveness of sins and leave everything else that was paid for on the cross. I remember we went to someone's house. Uh, I was in another state, and we took our three boys. They also had three boys, and they lived in a 10,000-square-foot house that was uh, professionally furnished, boats, da-da-da, lots of material possessions. And we went there to eat dinner, and they had one pizza for dinner, like for the 10 of us, one pizza. And so um, it was embarrassing because like when they were looking, I'm like drinking the garlic butter. I'm like licking the crumbs off the other kids' things. And like in those situations where there's not enough, it's a good thing for, you know, if I'd have been the first one and I'd have taken four pieces, you know, that, that's not a good thing in those environments, right? It's good to be humble and to do less, Okay. It's not like that in the kingdom. It's not a humble thing to not take everything that Jesus paid for because if I take some, there'll be less for other people. Okay, that's a scarcity mentality. When you receive something in the kingdom, it doesn't mean that there's less for somebody else. It means that there's more for somebody else because you just got a breakthrough. You know what a breakthrough is? It's a legal precedent for it to happen to you. God's thoughts towards you, it says, outnumber the sands of the seashore. And every single one of them, are you ready for this? Are, quote, to prosper you and not to harm you. God's been thinking about you for a long time. And all of his thoughts are to prosper you and not to harm you. If the forgiveness of sins was all that Jesus paid for, it would be the best news you'd ever heard and more than you and I ever deserve. But he paid for so much more so that you could be saved, healed, delivered, made whole, prospered, and protected. There has to be a group of people who are willing to explore the limits of God's goodness. You're never going to get to heaven and God's going to be like, (laughs) you exaggerated my goodness. I really wasn't as good as you thought, so you're going to have to wear a dunce cap for the first millennium. (laughs) It's impossible to exaggerate his goodness. I believe he's looking for people who will push past the disappointments, push past the religious spirit, push past the accusations of you're just being selfish. Listen, just... Push past that. Look into the cross and say, God, I want everything you paid for. I'm talking about apostolic abundance where you have wealth that transforms generations, cities, and nations. That prophetic prosperity or that wealth that originates in the heart of God flows supernaturally into your life and affects this earth. So let's conclude with this. We're going to make a confession. It's not to remind God of the truth. It's to renew our mind. It's to train our minds into what's possible. So it may sound a little familiar. You guys ready for this? I'm going to say it and you repeat it. Prosperity is not my idea. Prosperity is is God's idea. idea. I'm not trying to convince him. him. He's trying to convince me. me. All right, one more time. Prosperity is not my idea. Prosperity is is God's idea. idea. I'm not trying to convince him. him. He's trying to convince me. We're going to close with a little exercise here, and um, some of you guys know this. I went to a, a New Age bookstore a little while ago. I don't normally do that. It's just kind of something I did, and I found this book of spells, which was just absolutely fascinating. I couldn't believe it. I was reading them. Actually, um, I want to read one of the spells to you, and so um, I'm just kidding. I, it's not a book of spells. It's my journal. But let me tell you what happened. Some of you were nervous that if I were to read a magic spell out loud, that something supernatural would be released. And yet when you read the word of God, you don't have that same expectation. 
I'm not saying the Bible is a book of magic spells where you just read it and these things happen, but it is a book of relationship. And the point of it is to encounter the author, and it's a book of your inheritance. Here's what's available. Dive in. Spend your inheritance. Be a promiscuous giver. So here's what I want to do. You each received a sheet of paper, and so what I want you to do is I want you to just take a minute or two, and I want you to read through those verses, and I want it to be like a mind bath for you where those things just wash over your thoughts. There's some of my favorite verses that I feed on for finances. Circle any words, underline things, put some notes in it. But I want you to just begin to rewire your thinking, and then we're going to close in prayer. So take two minutes. Anybody find anything good in there? <clears throat> Here's your homework assignment. Read through those once a day for the next week. If, you, if one of them really hits you, man, put it on your phone. Look at it a couple times a day. We've got no cards around our house so that when we're walking by, we just see them. Just help us remember what's possible. So that's your homework assignment. So every week, we're going to have something to do so that we're taking steps forward together as a congregation. So when we come at the end, we're all going to be on the same page, have that laser-like plan. I will tell you this, I can't wait until next time to talk to you about the starting place for wealth. You will never be the same. <laughs>